As I said, this morning I want to talk to you about Jesus. Let me begin by asking a simple question. Perhaps this will sound a little bit obvious, but I'm going somewhere with this. Let me ask you, if you are a Christian, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Would you say that your relationship with Jesus is one of intimacy, one of warmth, one that you would like to grow? If you're a Christian, you would want all of those answers to be yes, emphatically yes. So then let me ask you a follow-up question to that. You have this relationship with Jesus. Where does Jesus come from? See, I'm asking that because just part of a relationship, especially one that's to be personal, warm, and intimate, is that you understand where the other person comes from. So to use an analogy, my closest earthly relationship is with my wife, and if I want to really know my wife, I need to know something of where my wife comes from. I need to know her family. I need to know the, the culture she grew up in, all of the influence that shaped the person that she became. My wife came from another country. She moved to the United States. She learned English as a second language. And on all of these various factors, where she comes from shapes the person that she is. And so I learn these things. I want to know. Not because I just want random data about her, but because I care about her as a person and I want our relationship to grow in its intimacy. I think this is, in fact, part of what Peter tells husbands to do in 1 Peter chapter 3, where the Scriptures call husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. When you love a person and have a relationship with them, you want to know everything about them. So then, where does Jesus come from? One answer would be maybe Jesus comes from Bethlehem. I read that in the Gospels. And that's true. Jesus comes from Bethlehem. It's where He was born. But the Scripture is rich and the information it tells us about Jesus, and in fact it tells us that Jesus did not begin in Bethlehem, but His life extends infinitely into eternity beyond that. If we really want to know where Jesus comes from in order to grow the intimacy of our relationship with Him, we need to know the Jesus of the Old Testament. If we try to understand Jesus, the Jewish Savior, without the Jewish Scriptures, we will always inevitably end up with a shrunken, dwarfed view of the Savior. Just as if I say to my wife, babe, I love you and I want to know you, but just don't talk to me about that Guatemala stuff. But that's where you came from, but that's in your past. Now you're here in the U.S. of A., and I just want to know you now. Don't talk to me about all that stuff. In fact, some of that stuff is it's hard to understand. Spanish? No me entiendo. I, it's just like I didn't even say that correctly. It's difficult. It's, it's literally foreign to me. But I can't do that, can I? As soon as I begin to talk like that, what I'm doing is I'm saying, babe, I don't really want to love you. I just want to make you into my own image. Really, I just want to love me. You see, as soon as we try to begin to divorce Jesus from the Old Testament, we will inevitably end up forming a Jesus in our own image. I don't want that. Jesus came to me in my stubborn self-sufficiency, and he saved me. I want to give my life to him. I want to be devoted to him. I want to be changed into his image, and I do not want to try to change him into mine, and I know that that's what you want too. This is why we need the Old Testament. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian because you need the whole Bible to see the whole Christ. And it's only by beholding the glory of Christ that God changes us into the image of His Son. That's what He saved us for. So towards that end, I want to commend to you, particularly among the books of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, this, what Christians have historically called the fifth gospel. That's in part because scholars have noted 
over 400 quotations and allusions to the book of Isaiah in your New Testaments. Typically, our English translations of the New Testament span about 200 pages. That's how many pages I have in my New Testament. That means that there are two quotations or allusions on every page of my New Testament. Or if you've got a columned Bible like mine, I've got a quotation or allusion to Isaiah on every column of my New Testament. The, the story of Isaiah shaped the New Testament writer's understanding of Jesus, his Messiah, God's Savior, God's Son. In fact, even the name Isaiah, Yeshayahu in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. What an appropriate name for this man with his message. I would submit to you that the more you understand this book, the more intimately acquainted you can become with your Savior. That's why we need these books. So this morning I'd like to give you a bit of an introduction to the book of Isaiah by looking at this magisterial first chapter. And as we get into this chapter, let me give you just one sentence of background information so we can make a a running start into it. Isaiah, as he's painting the scene that we find in chapter 1, has in the background the reality that when God called Israel through his servant Moses, he called Israel to be a people who would live in obedience to him in order to reveal God's glory to the nations. But they failed. This scene picks up the story And we find God bringing his people into a divine courtroom where he's prosecuting them for their sins, pleading with them to come to repentance, and then promising them a hopeful future. And in the course of forming this set, we then have the set upon which Jesus will walk to fulfill God's story. So I want to walk through chapter 1 of Isaiah with you under those three headings. We'll find in this chapter God's prosecution, God's plea, and God's promise as Isaiah constructs the set onto which Jesus will stride. Let's begin with looking at God's prosecution. That begins in verse 2. And really as we walk through as God's prosecuting in his courtroom, his people, God's really revealing for us three distinct truths about the nature of our sin that we need to wrestle with. And I want you to see those as we walk through this prosecution. The first reality about sin God reveals to us is that sin is betrayal. Part of the nature of sin is that sin is betrayal. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 2. God says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That's some strong, that's a strong condemnation, isn't it? You know, one of the realities that you find in the Old Testament, and I think this is really central to one of the, a central reason why we sometimes bristle at the Old Testament, is that it feels like every page is talking about our sin. And our natural response is, I don't like this, it's not comfortable. Why is this such a big deal? So why don't we ask that question of this text? According to this text, why does God think sin is a big deal? God gives numerous answers throughout the Scriptures, but in this text we find a couple reasons. Really, they're one unified reason, but He spoon-feeds it to us in two bites. The first is this. In the beginning of verse 2, He tells us God treats sin seriously because sin isn't just measured by the act itself. Sin, wrongdoings, which is what sin is, doing something wrong, a wrongdoing is measured by the dignity and honor of the one you offend, by the dignity and honor of the one against whom you do the wrong. I know that we live in a, a hyper-individualized Western culture wherein a sense of honor and dignity, it's not really, 
part of our everyday language. Some cultures still definitely have this understanding that dignity and honor are owed to certain individuals, but even in our society, we still have traces of it. For example, I work with students, and I think all of my students would understand that when, you're, when you are in a classroom setting, if you badmouth a student next to you, that's wrong. There'll be consequences for that. But if you badmouth the teacher, the severity has just been ramped up. Because you owe greater dignity to the teacher, you owe, more, you owe more honor and respect to the teacher because of who he or she is. See, a wrongdoing is not just measured by the act itself, but the honor due to the one you wrong. What do we find in, in verse 2 of Isaiah? We find God saying, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. This text is telling us that the one against whom we sin is the sovereign God of the universe, a God of infinite honor, infinite dignity. Every time we sin against Him, every time we do something wrong, it's against Him, a God to whom we owe infinite honor. And so every wrongdoing against this infinite God incurs an infinite penalty. But you know, the second part of verse 2 actually tells us the second reason why God takes sin seriously. And this, perhaps, in our cultural milieu, is a little bit easier for us to relate to. And that is, the second part of verse 2 is going to tell us that sin is also measured by the love that we owe to the one we've wronged. I think we really definitely get this. For example, I have next-door neighbors. If I do something wrong to my next-door neighbors, it's certainly wrong. But if I do something wrong to other individuals in my life, to whom I owe an even greater obligation to love and cherish, the wrong's more severe, isn't it? If I fail to love my wife and my children, if I wrong my wife and my children, the severity of my actions have just been ramped up. In fact, we even have a social service to deal with this because we know that there are some people in our lives that we owe love. What do we find in verse 2? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God's saying that fundamentally, rebellion against Him is a familial betrayal. God's saying, I raised these people, I nourished them, I loved them, I was infinitely compassionate and patient with them, and yet they rebelled against me. And so every rebellion against a God to whom we owe infinite love therefore incurs an infinite penalty. And in fact, Scripture tells us throughout that all people owe love to God. Acts chapter 17, we read that God gives all people life and breath and every good thing. And in Isaiah 43 and verse 7, Isaiah tells us that God made all people for His glory to know Him and love Him forever. Therefore, every sin that we commit against God incurs an infinite penalty because we owe God infinite love and He's an infinitely lovable being so we ought to love Him. But you know, for Christians, I think this ought to go especially to our hearts because if you are a Christian, you've become a Christian because this infinite God has become your Father through redemption in Christ. He's paid an infinite price to make you His child. Every Christian then owes God infinite love in return to what the way that he's loved them. This is why the Bible says sin is serious. It's betrayal. Because we don't just measure sin by the action itself, but by the one we committed against. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, I think, summarizes this so well. I'll put the, sc- the quote on the screen for you. He writes that our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in direct proportion to the being's loveliness, honorable and authority. Since God is of infinite loveliness, infinite honor, and infinite authority, our obligation to Him is 
infinite. This is why God takes sin seriously. It's a betrayal of the one to whom we owe infinite love, honor, and obedience. But God doesn't stop in verses 2 through 4. He continues the prosecution and moves from the point that sin is betrayal to an even more close-to-home reality that sin is not only betrayal against the God we owe honor and love, it's also self-destructive. Sin is also self-destructive. Notice that in verse 5. In verse 5, God continues his prosecution and says, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or even softened with oil. The picture here, if you just focus at the end of verse 6, is on the consequences that sin wreaks in a person's life. That is, sin destroys. The picture here is of a person who is just covered in welts from a beating and lacerations have become infected and the infection hasn't been pressed out. They haven't even been bandaged and so you have open festering wounds. This is a person who's just been mutilated and it's just a lump of raw flesh. And notice the way that God addresses this person in verse 5. He says, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? There's a note of empathy, of compassion. God is not gloating over our sin and the, and, and the destruction that it wreaks in our lives. He's not gloating at all. Rather, God's drawing our attention to it in order to heal it. You know, I think it's very much the case that we live in a culture of whatever makes you happy. Isn't that right? We shy away from confrontation And yet, even in this kind of whatever makes you happy culture, there's still a sense that some relationships of intimacy and love will at some times confront. There is a time when love will confront. Because if you have a relationship that's really close in which you actually genuinely love that person and you see that person engaging in self-destructive behavior, you won't just step aside and say, whatever makes you happy, and watch them throw away their lives. But if you really love them, you'll intervene. That's the picture that's on display for us here. God's prosecuting His people not as some kind of gleeful bully, but as a compassionate Father who's intervening in their lives and wants to bring healing. One of the questions you might ask is, well, that's great that you know, supposedly God wants to be a healer and wants to be a nice Father and all, but I got a question. Sometimes the things that the Bible says are sin in my life, they don't feel like sin to me. The Bible might say that this is bringing destruction, but it doesn't feel that way to me. This is a reality. The Bible addresses all kinds of things in our life. It says the, the Bible says our sin. God says through His Word that there are actions, attitudes, behaviors, relationships that come so natural and seem, at, at, at least at first, so fulfilling to us, and yet the Bible says they're sin, they're betrayal, they're self-destructive. So every person who wants to wrestle with the Word of God is going to have times when there are words that the Bible speaks into their life that confront attitudes or desires or behaviors. And the Bible says you need to repent of those, let go of them, trade your desires for God's desires, your life for God's life, your behaviors for the behaviors God says are justice and righteousness. And you hear that and you think, that doesn't sound like a healing father, that sounds like death. It sounds like if I believe that and I let go of this thing, I'll never be happy. I'll never be fulfilled. Sounds like this God wants to kill me. 
And if you've never felt that, then I wonder if you've really wrestled with this text. I have a hunch that you might not be quite that sanctified, that there are no words that confront you in this way. If you're not a Christian yet, then maybe the whole Bible feels that way. I think all of you probably can remember what that was like. So what do you do when the Word of God confronts you like this and it feels like it's come to kill you? Well, actually, this text addresses some of that. I want you to just notice the language God uses in verse 5. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? And this word rebel, it's not the normal Hebrew word for rebel. It's a word that literally means stubborn, obstinate hardness of heart. Why will you harden your heart? And he continues, verse 5, the whole head is sick. Don't you see? The whole heart is faint. God's addressing what's going on in our lives when we feel like God's bringing death, not life. That is that sin so entirely affects our whole person, it even affects our ability to recognize the destruction that sin's wreaking in our life. Just like a kid who puts his hand on a stove and leaves it there long enough that it sears off the nerves so they can no longer feel the damage that they're doing, so the longer we engage in sinful desires, fantasies, behaviors, relationships, our consciences are seared to the point that we don't even realize the festering wound that we're building on our souls. And so you say, how am I supposed to know that the Bible's words about my life are for good and not for ill? Well, here's one of the ways. One of the ways is that you need to remember the one who's speaking these words. The one who speaks these words into your life wants to be your loving father. And this father is not some fly-by-night, just trying to figure things out kind of a dad. He's the one who created the universe, who says that my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, as the heavens are above the earth. And I want your good. You know, we know this, even on a human level. I've got three little kids, two older ones particularly, they just, they have self-destructive, natural little tendencies. So I find myself, some days it feels like it's the only thing I do in a day, I, I correct them. I tell them, don't do that. And I, I don't do that because I just, I just love sucking all the fun out of their lives. I do that because I love them. And I don't do this perfectly, but I'm trying to, to guide them towards full flourishing, the life that God made for them. I want to keep them away from destructive tendencies and enable them to live a life to their full potential. This is what every, every parent wants for their kid. And yet sometimes when I tell my kids, don't do that, man, my word just sounds like death. Don't touch that electrical outlet. You're killing me! I mean, you know, sometimes when I tell my kids not to do something, I don't even tell them the reason why. I tell them to stop, and I ask them to honor my authority and believe my good intentions, and after they have obeyed, sometimes if they are at the point where they're mature enough to handle it, then I will explain the reason. But I don't give them the reason right away. I tell them, trust me, submit to me. You know, you have the one speaking in this text who speaks all through this book into your life is a God of infinite wisdom and infinite love who wants you to believe his authority. And if you believe it, and you act on it, and you do it, and you apply this word to your life, you'll find that his word in the end is for life, not for death. Jesus says this often in his teaching. He says in John 7, if anyone wants 
to do the will of my Father, then he'll understand the teaching. When you give your life to this God and you come under this God's authority, then you'll understand how all of his ways are for your good. In the course of prosecuting his people, this is what we're beginning to see, is that the God who is calling sin a big deal calls it a big deal because it's betrayal by its nature and it's self-destructive and this God wants to heal our wounds. But then he continues the prosecution by responding to what might be an objection. He continues by showing us a third thing about sin and that is that sin is also subtle, very subtle. Notice that in verse 10. In verse 10, God says to his people, hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Wow, that is an accusation. He just called his own people Sodom and Gomorrah. I know Gomorrah is a name that's been redeemed by a Marvel movie in our, in our day and age. But that would be shocking to the people of Israel. Maybe in a polarized world in which we live, take the political candidate whose behavior you find most appalling. Imagine someone calling you that and then amp up your disgust by a power of a hundred. God's saying, you have become what they were and you deserve what they got and yet I'm being merciful to you and offering you repentance. And yet, as people hear You've become Sodom and Gomorrah. The natural response is like, wow, you're so right, God. I was, I was acting like a Sodomite. Good thing you're on my side and you're here confronting me. Man, you showed up just in the, in the nick of time. That's not the way that we respond. The way we respond is something more like, are you kidding me? Don't you see all of the things that I do? Don't you see all of this? And what God is showing us in verses 10 through 15 is that sin is subtle. All of the things that we saw in the opening verses about its betrayal of an infinitely glorious God and its self-destructive nature are true, but it subtly hides behind the good things that we do. And so God wants to rip off that cloak and expose the wounds so he can heal them. That's what he does in verses 11 through 15. And we don't have time to go into the details of all this text, but I want to make a couple observations as we just walk through them very quickly. First, I want you to see the kinds of good things that Israel says they've been doing. You notice in, in verse 11, <clears throat> they say they've been offering him burnt offerings of rams, well-fed beasts, blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. These are not people who are skimping at the offering plate. They were giving him an abundance of the good stuff. They weren't holding back. Moreover, in verse 12, it says that they're coming into his courts, consistently coming to public corporate worship. Then in verse 13, it says they're observing new moon, Sabbath, and convocations, which your English Bible might have a dozen references to texts in the Mosaic Law, where you see that these are institutions, occasions, observances, commanded by God. They're saying, we did what you told us to do. Moreover, in verse 15, they even say they're heaping up prayers, an abundance of prayers. It's not like we have a cold prayer life, God. But notice how God responds to all of this. Verse 11, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. Verse 12, when you come into my courts, you're trampling and destroying them. Verse 13, your offerings are vain abominations to me. Verse 14, God amps it up to the point that he says, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. That's the strongest language available. My whole heart hates what you're doing. Why? 
little line at the end of verse 13 tells us why God's responding to their good deeds this way. The end of verse 13, God says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You can't have both sin and God. You have to let go of one to have the other. God hates that these people are a festering wound and yet they're trying to cover it up with religious activity and good things. We're going to find other texts in Isaiah where God's not mad at the sacrificial system. He invented it, but He is very upset with using good things that God desires as a blanket to cover internal sin. He wants to rip that off and expose what's really under there so that we could be healed. That's what God's doing. I, want, I noticed something really interesting at the very end of this little section in verse 15 that I think helps us get our minds around what God's doing. Verse 15, he's responding to their prayers. He says, you spread out your hands, but I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What an interesting turn of phrase. This word, filling the hands, is actually used in a number of other texts. It's used in Exodus when Moses consecrates his brother Aaron to be a priest to the Lord. So there's a text in Exodus where God tells Moses, I want you to consecrate, that is to set your brother Aaron aside so that his whole life will be dedicated to serving me. And here's how you're going to do it. You'll pour oil on him and then you'll fill his hands. We translate it as consecrate because that's what he's doing. But the Hebrew uses this metaphor. To set this person aside, you fill his hands with what? With devotion to God affection for God, service to God. And now God says, I'm not going to listen to your prayers because your hands aren't filled with what I want them full of. Your hands are full of your own desires and your own sin. In other words, what God wants is to expose the reality of our sins so that He can fill us with Himself. And do you see now that as God's prosecuting His people, all that He's been doing streams together. God showed His sin as betrayal against an infinitely glorious God, and yet, out of His love, He wants to show us the self-destructive nature of our sin so He could heal us and make us His own. The picture we get of this prosecuting judge is not a mean bully, but a benevolent good Father who wants to renew us. And in fact... That leads to the second scene in this drama where God turns from prosecuting his people and in verse 16, he suddenly pivots to begin pleading with them. I want you to notice secondly in Isaiah 1, God's plea. Notice verse 16 where God says this, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, boom, 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 boom. Nine straight staccato imperatives. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. He's prosecuted us and showed us our sins, and now he says, here's the solution. Change. Just totally, completely transform yourself. Change everything about you. Change your desires. Change the things you want. Change your ambitions. Change the way you look at the world. Stop thinking about yourself. Think entirely about others. Stop doing your old behaviors. Adopt entirely new behaviors. Just change everything. Boom, go do it. Does that sound hopeful to you? There was a, an old, or at least old to me, uh, video clip floating around on the internet of Bob Newhart, a comedian that some of my elders showed me, uh, in which he plays a, a therapist who engages in just five-minute therapy sessions where a patient comes in, they sit down, and they tell him their problems, and then he responds to every patient with two words. He says, I'm going to give you 
two very important words. I want you to take them to heart and walk out the door and incorporate them into your life and it'll solve your problem. So they finished telling him all about their problems and then he says, okay, here are your two words. You ready? Here they are, two words. Stop it! (laughs) Just stop it! (laughs) That's what 16 and 17 in this text are. This is God's stop it. If you hear that and you go, oh great, and you walk out the door and say, I'm just going to do justice and then God will be so pleased with me, then you've missed the point. The point of this is not, well just turn over a new leaf and try better next time. The point is you can't become the person God requires. You can't do this. You can't entirely walk out the door and just change everything about you. Verses 16 and 17, all these imperatives are supposed to pummel you like a round of Mike Tyson knockouts and just draw you to your knees to the point that you realize, I am guilty, as God says, and I can't do anything to change it. And as soon as you get there, then you open yourself to receive mercy. And that's what God wants to offer you. In verse 18, God then begins to plead with his people. Notice in verse 18 the compassion in this text. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. In this scene, God is the, is the judge in his courtroom, and he's finished prosecuting, the verdict is in, the defendant is guilty, there's no way that they can get out of it, and so at that point he takes off his robe, gets off his chair, and invites the defendant to come with him back to his chambers. And he sits you down in his chambers and he says, let's settle this, let's consider your options. Notice verse 18 again. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Yes, you are guilty before God. But he says, I can forgive you. Yes, your nature is sinful, but I can cleanse you. You can't add anything to this, you can't contribute to this, but I can do what you cannot do. I can make you new. I can blot out all your sins. I can give you a new heart. I can make you a new person. Verse 19, he continues and says, if you're willing and obedient, you can have this. You can have this gift. He doesn't tell us how. He doesn't tell us the means. He just says, here it is. I will give you mercy. I'll change you. I'll forgive you. I'll make you new. And he leaves it there on the table as an opportunity for his people to come receive. Well, as I said, he doesn't explain how exactly he's going to do that. He just says, come, you can have it. But then he hurries on, and so we must hurry on to the third movement in this drama. That is, after prosecuting and pleading with his people, we finally get a promise. The promise begins in verse 21, down to verse 31, but really verses 21 to 23 aren't a promise but a sentence. That is, in verse 21, Isaiah is told that the people in his generation will not receive God's plea for mercy. They will not receive God's offer of forgiveness. They'll harden their hearts in rebellion, and so in their stubbornness, seal their fate and receive judgment. And that's what God begins to recount in verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She was full of justice, righteous lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes, they're rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. So that sharp shift from pleading to a lament 
I don't know if you noticed it, but verse 21 really is a lament. God's lamenting that when people harden their hearts and refuse to come to him for mercy, they seal their fate and receive judgment. Verse 21, there's not a perfect way to render this in English. I mean, we get the flavor of it in our translation, but this word, how, it's the same word that forms the title of the book of Lamentations in the Hebrew. Aha! It's this deep, guttural, why, longing, lament. Why will you do this? And so at this point in the drama, as Isaiah is constructing this set for this play that's going to unfold, it seems like at this moment the foreground is just being closed with darkness. The curtains are drawing to a close. People have hardened their hearts in their rebellion, and they've not come to God for mercy. Is there anything left? And just at that moment, a light bursts through. Because in verse 25, God says, I'll still accomplish my redemptive purposes. Verse 25, notice this. He says, I will turn my hand against you. It sounds like judgment. Usually when God brings his hand, he's bringing his power to judge. But here, it's a purifying judgment. Notice he says, I'll turn my hand against you and so smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. God's promising that through judgment he'll bring redemption, and he will create the kind of people who repent. He'll put a new heart in his people and cause them to respond to his pleas for mercy and cause cause them to come to him and receive redemption. And it ends like that. You say, well, we have all of the pieces on the set, but I'm not sure how they're going to function or how this is all going to work together, but everything's there. It's like you have the puzzle pieces on the table. You're just not sure how they all fit together, but as you begin to read through the book of Isaiah, things keep getting clearer and clearer. So maybe we could do that for just a moment. If you flip to chapter 6, we begin to see things a little bit clearer as Isaiah in chapter 6 is given this throne room vision of the God of the universe on his throne. In verse 1 he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. This majestic God Isaiah is seeing. And there are these six-winged, majestic, angelic figures who are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But then notice the way that Isaiah responds to seeing to seeing God. It's not like the people in chapter 1. In verse 5, Isaiah responds like this. He says, Woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips. He's pronouncing him on himself the same curse that God pronounced on sinful Israel in chapter 1. He says, Yes, I really am who God says I am. I really am sinful. And as soon as he confesses, as soon as he comes to repentance, God responds with redemption. In verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. God is giving Isaiah a heart of repentance, and through repentance, mercy. Still, we're not exactly sure how this is happening. Somehow God's redeeming Isaiah. He's, He's repenting and receiving redemption. But Isaiah begins to serve as a picture of what God does for an individual he's going to do for all of his people. And you keep reading through the book of Isaiah and this begins to get clearer and clearer. We go to Isaiah 40, a pivot chapter in the whole book, and suddenly we learn that it's in fact God himself who's going to come into the world in order to do this. Isaiah 40 and verse 3, we hear this announcement. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. 
Make straight in the desert, listen to this, in the desert, who's coming in the desert? Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 40 says God himself is going to crash into human history and himself in physical time space human history is going to redeem his people. You say, How's, what? How is that going to happen? And so as you read Isaiah 40, you begin to get up on tiptoes and say, when's this going to come? When is God going to come into the world to redeem his people? And you keep reading and you get to chapter 42 and you're not met with a vision of Yahweh riding on a chariot entering the world, but rather you're introduced to a servant. A servant who's going to accomplish this redemption, and in fact, a meek and mild servant who, verse 3 says, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That is, a candle that's on his last leg, he won't come along and The servant will be patient, gentle, compassionate, mild. But somehow, as we keep reading about the servant, we get to Isaiah 49 and verse 7 and learn that God is going to make him a light for the nations so that his salvation will reach the ends of the earth. This meek, gentle, patient, compassionate servant is going to extend God's redemption to the globe. And things keep getting clearer as we come to Isaiah 52 and verse 13. And now we learn that the servant is going to be exalted This is incredible language. High and lifted up. The exact same language that was used of the God of the universe on his throne in Isaiah 6. Now we learn that the servant somehow is going to be exalted to divine glory. See, how is a meek and mild servant going to be exalted to divine glory? And it gets even more confounding in chapter 53 where we learn that he's going to die a brutal and miserable death, cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And yet, as Isaiah continues to write, we get to the end of the story in chapter 66 and somehow this servant has secured a way that in Isaiah 66 we end on a note where God creates a new heavens and a new earth. He redeems the whole universe and brings his people to worship with him forever. Isaiah is setting the stage. All the props are in place. And God's people are waiting and waiting and waiting. And we're turning in our Bibles and we're coming to the Gospels and we get to the Gospel of Mark. And the very opening words of the Gospel of Mark pick up this story and say, I want to tell you about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Let me tell you the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Let me tell you about the one Isaiah wrote about he's finally coming. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make his path straight. That's the text I read from Isaiah 40. Mark is saying God is coming into human history. It's finally happening. Mark wants you to read the introduction of his gospel as like a thunderbolt through your mind. God's coming! And you learn that his name is Jesus. And you read through the gospels and you find that it's Jesus who is coming to, as a patient and compassionate servant. Jesus who's going to suffer and die for his people. And through his suffering and death, he'll be exalted to divine glory. And through his death and resurrection, he secures a people for his God and enables God to redeem the whole universe and bring his people to himself to worship him forever. You're supposed to read Jesus on the stage that Isaiah built. What God gives us books like this to do is to elevate our minds into these rarefied heights at which Isaiah is writing so we could clear our view and see that the Jesus who gave himself for us, 
so we have this intimate and genuine personal relationship, He's not just a personal Savior. He is the infinitely glorious, eternal King of the universe, seated on His throne for all of the past ages, who reveals all of God's glory before the cosmos and will resurrect all of His people, transform the universe. This is a Jesus who's more than you could ever ask, hope, think, or imagine, and He wants you to know Him. He wants you to know all of Him. He wants you to live your entire life compelled by His glory and His power and His grace. He gave all of Himself for you. So now you can come and give all of yourself to Him. So I submit to you the fifth gospel and I would plead with you. Don't neglect what God has given you. You need a whole Bible to be a whole Christian because you need a whole Bible to know the whole Christ and only by seeing Christ will you be made into the same image. Let's go to Him together in prayer. Oh God, we worship You for giving us Your Son. We want to know Him. We want to know all of Him. We want to be overwhelmed and transformed because of the vision of His glory that You give us. God, we want to be Your people. We want to be Your servants. So would you melt the frost that settles on our hearts so easily and give us warm affections and love for Christ. Lord, send us out of this place with resolve to live in a way that magnifies Him, to live in a way that, that, that people will see our good works and so give glory to our Father in heaven. And we ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.